Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for finding Whitehall Sources. Before we get stuck into the politics for you, a quick message from The Resident. These hotels, like their choice in podcasts, are exceptional. Whether you're travelling for business or leisure, at The Resident, you're offered the best rooms, prices and advice for your needs as well. We are so thrilled to be brought to you in association with The Resident, who have proudly backed us since day one. When we're booking a stay in London or Liverpool, it's the resident we head to, and it's the resident you should head to. To find out more, click residenthotels.com. The first and most important principle is that Israel has the right to defend itself under international law. Our support for that position is absolute and unchanged. Uh, But from the start, we have also said that we do want British nationals to be able to leave Gaza and that we want hostages to be released and for humanitarian aid to get in. And we recognise that for all of that to happen, there has to be a safer environment, which of course necessitates specific pauses as distinct from a ceasefire. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. We're recording on Thursday the 26th of October. Thank you very much for finding us. Of course, this podcast is nothing without Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May when she was Prime Minister. Hello, Kirsty. Good morning to you. Good morning. Can I start by uh, injecting what is probably likely to be one of the few light points in, <laughs> uh, in our discussion today? Uh, I have, after four pretty gruelling months. I have finally finished my chemotherapy. I finished it yesterday. And it would be severely remiss of me not to give a huge, huge uh, note of thanks to everyone who said really kind and supportive things who listens to the podcast. That's meant a lot to me. and I hugely appreciate everybody's support. Um, And then obviously... The amazing, and I like I don't I don't say this lightly, but literally the amazing staff and nurses uh, at the Amberley Unit at Worthing Hospital, uh, they are worth their weight in gold, and they have made you know an absolutely grim experience so much easier with their great levels of care and their you know their common sense approach and their absolute you know uh, well of compassion they are. Uh, wonderful, wonderful men and women, and yeah, like I say, they they they're the worth their weight in gold. Let yeah. alone an above inflation pay rise, but you know, let's not get political about it. Uh, just just a huge, huge, huge thanks to to everyone at the Amberley Unit. They are superstars. Well, I am going to just speak on behalf of everyone listening, because I feel I can today, that we are very glad they've looked after you so well. That's great to hear. We're really glad that you are here and that you're doing this and that you are punching well above your weight in terms of how busy you are throughout this whole blooming chemo thing. I can't honestly believe it, Kirsty. Look, we, look, we all have our coping mechanisms, <laughs> yeah, right? Fair, and the podcast, this fair. podcast has been hugely important to me to to continue 
you know, normal life and mm. to feel part of life rather than being apart from normal mm. life. Uh, so thank you for, no, not at uh, all. you know, putting up with me. I haven't always been the most cogent when I've been very tired, but... Um, so I was yeah, going to I think you see that. You see that. And you've said that to me before we started recording. Oh, you know, I'm a bit exhausted today or whatever. And then as soon as we press record, it's just Buchanan's rules of comms kick right in and we're all over it. It's absolutely <laughs> astonishing. Um, so no, you're wonderful. You are brilliant and well done. And yeah, gosh, what a few months it's been for sure, for sure. Um, just on that note, actually, we are kind of celebrating between amongst ourselves a year of this podcast existing which is actually remarkable. I can't believe, I cannot believe it's been a happy, year. Happy birthday to us. It's oh, flown by, isn't it? It has flown by. Do you know, we've never had a quiet moment, I don't think, in the whole time, including in, in what should be quiet moments, you know, holidays and recesses and whatnot. There have been reshuffles. We started just before Liz Truss resigned. I'm looking back. Episode four was the resignation of Liz Truss. <laughs> uh, so just before that happened, um, we've had all sorts of, we've had the Rwanda um, uh, uh, flights. That's been quite a sort of center point, actually, of lots of our discussion because it's been such a big thing for um, for the government as well. I'm just scrolling back. The not mini budget, <laughs> that's there too. Um, Gavin Williamson featured. The awful honeymoon period for uh, for Rishi Sunak. His first month as prime minister was pretty chaotic, actually. I mean, it's even just looking back at that. That was that was before the new year. That was the end of 2022. <laughs> do you remember as well? We pulled together some um, brilliant political editors and correspondents and whatnot to do jaw-dropping moments of 2022. And there was a theme that they were really just yeah. struggling to choose any of them <laughs> because there were so many. And it's funny, isn't it? Because you you know after such a you know a, a period of uh, really volatile. Uh, crazy politics that kind of started in 2016, you know, with the referendum and Brexit and stuff and haven't really stopped. And then when you think, you know, eventually it reached its kind of climax with uh, Liz Truss's uh, spectacular, depending <laughs> on how you want to view the word spectacular, uh, period in office. And after that, and the kind of grown-ups move into number 10 again and you think, oh, you know, common sense is restored and, you know, back to kind of, a bit more politics as we know it. But actually, that Tory psychodrama hasn't let up at all. And, you know, it's worth reminding people again that that really, you know, toxic legacy that, that Rishi Sunak inherited, which was made considerably worse by, by Boris Johnson's premiership and Liz Truss's, mm. hasn't gone away. And by the way, will also be inherited by whoever wins the next general election. So, yes, it has been a very... I'm reminded of that old Chinese proverb about, you know, that old Chinese curse about may you live in interesting times. <laughs> um, but there is one thing that I do remember that I said, and I'm very relieved so far that I don't have to make good on my promise, which was that I said if the Rwandan uh, deportation policy became law, I would change my name to La La Moonchild and <laughs> go and live in a yurt somewhere. Now, uh, we all wait I particularly wait for the results of the Supreme Court ruling in mid-December, uh, for I have no wish to change my name to La La uh, But we shall see. But so far, a year on, I, I am still known as Kirsty Buchanan. And yes, thankfully. for that. We've got the yurt sitting in our Amazon uh, Amazon basket in case we need to press order on that for you at some point. Oh my God, it's my Christmas present, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to get I'll a yurt. Buy a, I'll buy you an I Heart Chris Mason t-shirt and you'll buy me a yurt to go <laughs> a and live in. Yeah, exactly. Seems fair. Uh, so it's been a year of Whitehall sources. Now, the idea of the podcast, which, you know, I think we're doing all right on, actually. And thank you for listening, by the way. Thank you for being here. Some of you I know will have listened to every single episode since the start. So thank you. Uh, if you're Wise just people. Exactly. <laughs> if you're just joining, then welcome, welcome, welcome. It's great to have you. And if you've been around for a bit or you've just joined, please tell your friends, the more the merrier, because what you get is access to people like Kirsty, who have lived it, who have breathed it, who have been there, who have done that. And I'm just thinking back to some of our episodes, you know, we, we've, we've, we do the insider bit. That's the whole idea here. So behind the scenes on budget day was brilliant. We had such a cast of amazing people. Who, were all, who would all be positioned in different places around Whitehall on a day of the budget, either for the government or for the opposition. And they give you such an insight into, um, into how 
that sort of day works. Who's running from the chamber to one of the little rooms behind the chamber with bits of paper and notes to how to respond. That's the sort of insight you get. Then we do things like we talk about the legal Christmas parties that you might have enjoyed at Downing Street and indeed the sleepovers that Kirsty did for Brexit, <laughs> around Brexit time, oh. uh, <laughs> crashing at number 10 or 11 on the Chancellor's sofa. Uh, what else have we got? Matt Hancock and I'm a Celebrity. That featured quite a lot in our episodes as well. Um, my prediction that Nicola Sturgeon wouldn't be First Minister by the end of 2023. Um, that one came true a lot sooner than I'd expected, I have to say. Uh, but basically, all of this is about how politics works. That's what Whitehall Sources does. That's why we're here. And that's why we're very glad to have you there as well. So welcome. Thank you for being there for a whole year. Press subscribe, press follow and tell your friends. Coming up on today's podcast then, we are also marking a year of Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. How has it been? We'll be speaking to Scarlett Maguire. Uh, she is a pollster with JL Partners. She'll, she'll be able to sort of guide us through the year. The ups, the downs, the what's worked, the what hasn't, and indeed how the next year potentially is looking. 2024 is, of course, an election year. Well, we think uh, it's more than likely to be in 2024. Uh, so we'll talk to Scarlett about that. Uh, plus, we're going to discuss, of course, uh, the situation in Israel and in Gaza and the responses to it. It's been a particularly tricky week for the Labour Party in terms of navigating their position and their take on it as well. So all of that to come today on Whitehall Sources. Thanks for being with us. Uh, there's going to be a busy one. Hang in there. And of course, you can email anytime. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address to get in touch. Let's talk about uh, the Labour Party and more specifically the Labour Party's response to the conflict in Israel and in Gaza. And the real difficulty, Kirsty, that they are sort of have got themselves in the last 24 hours, my, my sort of first observation, and perhaps I would say this, is that for the last couple of days, um, there has not been anybody on the morning round for Labour. There's been no, as in the broadcast interview round, normally they're really keen, they're really eager to have somebody out and about on the radio, on the telly. Uh, there's been none of that, uh, certainly today. There's been nothing from Sir Keir Starmer sort of, uh, in terms of public appearances. There's been a couple of statements. Because of the internal difficulties that Labour is um, grappling with on the Israel-Hamas war. So let me just bring you this from the papers today. The Times and the Mail, uh, they've, they're sort of picking up on the difficult week. Um, uh, nobody sort of has quit yet, but the Times says notably up to four shadow ministers are on resignation watch. The Mirror, the Guardian say that as well. Um, and so there was a bit of a pivot, really. This all hinges on this pivot from Sir Keir Starmer yesterday. Uh, to call for humanitarian pauses in Gaza um, to, in order that uh, aid can get in. And it's and I suppose the notable thing about that is it stops short of a ceasefire. As ever, this issue is so complex in terms of the language that is being used. What do you make of that pivot, first of all, from Keir Starmer, which itself followed real pushback from um, particularly Muslim Labour members and, and sort of voices in the party in terms of how he was responding to the conflict? Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Keir Starmer is in lockstep with the government on this. And, uh, you know, from my own personal point of view, on an issue that is becoming this divisive uh, and dangerous for both Muslim communities and Jewish communities in this country... I think it is very important for the opposition and the government as much as is possible uh, to speak with, with one voice on this because, you know, we've seen time and time again and sadly this is no different than what happens uh, in Israel and uh, Gaza uh, quickly kind of converts into what happens on the streets of, of Britain. Uh, so I think it is uh, important uh, to have that unity. It is also, uh, however, uh, necessary for Keir Starmer to shift from a position. Um, now, uh, a, I think it was, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, he did uh, an interview for LBC, which which is what sparked a lot of the internal problems that Labour mm. had, where he uh, obviously supported Israel's right to self-defence and when was asked whether that included um uh you know siege conditions where uh you know Gazans were deprived uh of you know water and, and fuel and electricity uh and aid 
uh, as a consequence of having to starve those things from Hamas, who obviously steal all those things and stockpile them when they come through, uh, whether that was part and parcel of self-defence, to which he said yes. Now, he has you know, subsequently uh, corrected that, said he sort of misspoke and that it is important that, you know, the actions that Israel take are in accordance with international law. Uh, but the caveat for a lot of people within the Labour Party was nine days afterwards and was too little and too late. Mm. Having said all that, I think it's important to remind ourselves of some of the context and backdrop to uh, Keir Starmer's positioning uh, and where the Labour Party found itself at the fag end of Corbyn's uh, leadership. And I think, you know, such as the scale of the turnaround that uh, Keir Starmer has affected on, on deliberately affected on the Labour Party um, uh, and therefore the consequential rise in uh, the Labour Party's support um, with the public, that uh, you forget the kind of moral depths that it plunged to under Corbyn's leadership and the political consequences of that. You know, the electoral result of nine of the 2019 election under Corbyn's leadership was the worst result for Labour since 1935. And a big part of that was because uh, the Labour Party was seen to have lost touch uh, with the values uh, of ordinary British people, the values of tolerance, respect uh, for everybody. And it's also important to remember that because it's almost three years to the day, it's 29th of October, uh, that the Equality and Human Rights Commission uh, sanctioned the Labour Party for discrimination uh, against the Jewish community mm. uh, on three counts. That's the first time that a political party has been sanctioned uh, by the Equalities Committee since the British National Party. This is this is not. Wow. You know, you had you had the chief rabbi, um, you know, accusing Corbyn of stoking rhetoric. Mm. Uh, akin to Enoch Powell. This is not the position. This is a shameful position to put a mainstream political party in. And when, you know, when Starmer came in, he promised to rip anti-Semitism out by his roots. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of members and councillors have been purged. However, having said all that, there is still a... Uh, you know, sits to the left of Keir Starmer rump within the Conservative, uh, within the Labour Party, sorry, um, that are very uncomfortable uh, with this positioning that Starmer has put them in uh, over this. So we have, you know, 40 MPs backing Richard Bergen's early day motion calling for an immediate ceasefire by Israel. Uh, I just mentioned as an aside because I think it's funny that Richard Bergen is known as the MP for Gaza. Um, uh, we have 150 and counting Muslim councillors with a much more uh, potentially serious point here, uh, again calling for uh, a, you know, a ceasefire and a radical change of position from the leadership. Mm. And we have some MPs also who've broken ranks with this kind of uh, unity that he's managed to, you know, discipline he's managed to affect. Now, you have to bear in mind that some of these Labour MPs, the likes of John McDonnell, etc., are the very same Labour MPs who were prepared to put a man into Number 10 who uh, called Hamas friends and invited them to Westminster. So it's not uh, entirely surprising that they now find themselves hugely outraged by uh, Starmer's support for Israel's right to defence uh, against the uh, terrible, terrible atrocities uh, of terrorists on October the 7th. Mm. Um, but this is a real delicate balancing position for him. There are something like uh, 30, uh, you know, 30 constituencies where, you know, the Muslim vote uh, matters hugely to, to Labour in the next election. Um, and obviously, you know, Keir Starmer doesn't want to alienate uh, the Muslim community who must be feeling... Uh, you know, uh, who are feeling um, vulnerable at the moment. He doesn't want to alienate them any more than he wants to alienate the British Jewish community who have, you know, seen uh, attacks and abuse increase, I think, 1,300% yeah, or something horrific right. yeah. uh, since since October the 7th and the start of the war. Um, so, you know, it is a delicate balance for him. I think he struck the right balance. And as I said at the start, I think, you know, on an issue as, as divided as this, 
where what happens over there matters to both the Muslim community and the Jewish community over there. You know, it's right to strike the balance, but it's also right not to lose sight of the original point here, which is that without question, under international law, uh, Israel has the right to self-defence and no nation state, no nation state would... uh, would do anything other than defend itself mm. had 1,400 citizens been brutally uh, massacred, raped, 200 others taken hostage. Uh, no other nation state would have acted in any other way. Uh, so, you know, I think Stam has taken the right position on this. You know, how much he's prepared to hold it, I hope he does. I think it's the right thing to do. Uh, but there will be a cost for him. There will be a cost for him in terms of the Labour Party and there will be a cost for him in terms of support. Yeah. One of the interesting aspects to this, I suppose, is the is the attention that is given to the various uh, actors in all of this, if I can use that term, because I don't want to give equivalence between um, Israel and Hamas in terms of who is, uh, who is operating here. Uh, but of course, the, the kind of initial response, understandably, is immediate condemnation of Hamas as a terrorist organisation who has committed a terrorist act uh, against um, against, as you say, you know, many many people. But actually, as things move on, that full-bodied support for Israel's response seems to be under more and more scrutiny. Um, and this is something I think that's being discussed more and more now: is the is the kind of attention on Israel and the real desire for Israel to, yes, respond, but to be proportionate in how it responds. And I think there has been a notable shift, perhaps, in political rhetoric around this. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's there's not only been a, a, a notable shift, I think there's also been a, a significant split between the positions yeah. of, of Europe, uh, unsurprisingly the United Nations, who have, frankly, you know, no moral high horse to stand there lecturing anybody uh, about their positioning. Um, but but more importantly, there's been a split between the Europe, Europe position, which is now uh, for an out-and-out ceasefire, uh, and the US and the UK position, which is a, a pause, a humanitarian pause of an indefinite period, but not specifically not a, a ceasefire. And herein lies the problem for Israel. Now, like economists, right, lawyers and, and, and legal uh, definitions of things are not absolutist. They are all open to interpretation. Unfortunately, it is inconvenient mm. truth, but nevertheless, it's true. Yeah. Uh, so what does self-defense mean? How far does it stretch? What does it encompass? And so time and time again, we've seen this debate in the media about, uh, yes, Israel has the right to defense, but you know, what does that mean and is it proportionate, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, uh, and, I, and I think Israel, if they're not careful, you know, having a dry legal debate about, you know, the limits or otherwise of the right to self-defence will only is a road that will run out for them, I'm afraid, because mm. ultimately for people uh, and for the media and for governments under pressure, um, you know, this becomes a, a PR battle. It doesn't become a one about, you know, you can point to the dry legal text and say it's this, that and the other, and you might very well be right. Mm. But if you lose the court of public opinion, you will lose your allies on this. So they need to balance that. There is a separate balance to be had, though, which I also think is important to throw into the mix on this, is as ever, you know, the actor behind all of this, which is, you know, the actor that, that funds and pulls the strings of Hamas, which is Iran. And Tehran will be looking very, very carefully for signs of weakness by both the West and Israel about this. And in much the same way as Putin, when he invaded the crime, invaded Crimea and the West did nothing about it except mm. like lay down some, you know, you know, condemnatory motions, but actually did nothing about it. That was taken by Putin as a sign of weakness by the West and carte blanche to invade Ukraine. And here we are. Uh, because certain people will will, will view any uh, any step back from an original position as a sign of weakness, uh, and I think it's very dangerous for you know Western governments to lose sight of that too. Um, 
But having said all that, I think we need to be very mindful as a public and as a media about maintaining our focus where ultimately the blame for all of this lies. Now, there's an interesting one that we talk about right now. Hospitals are 48 hours away from running out of fuel, fuel that fuels their own private generators, which is, you know, have been keeping their hospitals uh, going. Uh, now, this quite rightly, I'm not disputing the point about you know humanitarian aid and humanitarian pauses. I support it wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, innocent Gazans are caught up in this struggle uh, and this conflict uh, just as much as innocent Israeli civilians are. Um, however, you know, I've heard very few people, and to be fair, to, you know, and hats off to Times Radio because I did hear uh, uh, the presenter this morning raising this point. One of the reasons that Israel is reluctant to bring particularly fuel in is because it is stolen, UNRWA fuel is stolen uh, by Hamas and stockpiled. And one of the reasons it's really important for Hamas to steal the fuel and stockpile it is because 70 metres underground are 1,300 tunnels, which they use to navigate, use to smuggle, use to store weapons, mainly under schools and hospitals, etc. There's 500 kilometres of tunnels. There is no tunnel system in the world like Hamas tunnels. That's where all the money went that should have been building schools and hospitals and bringing wealth and prosperity to the Gazans. Uh, it went on this terror network of tunnels. So, yes, by all means, let's keep up the pressure on Israel. It's right to keep up the pressure on Israel uh, to have these humanitarian pauses so that aid can get in to the Gazan people. But I hear precious few people saying, if Hamas cared about Gazan people, cared about people in hospitals at the moment who are days away from running out of fuel, mm. well, you know, here's an idea. Why don't you give them back some of their stolen, siphoned humanitarian fuel uh, that is being used to pump air around your tunnels so your terrorists can continue to, to move uh, unimpeded by any amount of Israeli bombing. And, I, and as I say, I hear precious few people uh, mention that, let alone the fact that, by the way, these, these shelters, would, you know, these tunnels would be great bomb shelters for Gazan people too. But you know, the, the focus needs to be balanced. And I, you know, I worry about the balance shifting too much because the other thing about that is if, if the West and the balance shifts too much, it will embolden uh, Netanyahu. Uh, we all need to be mindful of keeping the right balance here and, and pushing, rightly pushing, but mm. maintaining support and maintaining the balance and pointing out here that this was all the result of Hamas's terror attack on October the 7th. And also reminding people that you know Hamas do not care about Gazans. They don't. They are expendable in their terror war. Kirsty, thank you. Um, it is a complex issue and you're navigating it with uh, such articulate consideration for which we are very grateful, of course. Uh, this is Whitehall Sources. Thanks for being with us on the podcast. Still to come then, uh, we've got a brilliant conversation for you with Scarlett Maguire, a director at JL Partners, a polling company, as we consider Rishi Sunak's first year uh, in office as Prime Minister, the highs, the lows, the peaks, the troughs, and how things are looking for the year ahead. Stay with us. This is Whitehall Sources. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Let me tell you about the resident hotel where I just stayed. 
That's right, I have been to the resident in Liverpool for a lovely, lovely stay. I have to be honest, it was wonderful. And I'm not just saying that, I promise you it was great. The warmest of welcome from the lovely reception team, including a lovely welcome card signed by Megan and the resident team. We were offered a map, we were offered guidance on where to go for food and for drinks. The location was great. We had several activities in Liverpool. We had a friend's birthday dinner. Then we were bowling, we were doing all of that stuff, and all of it was within a 10-minute walk of where the hotel was, which was perfect. Not only that, we had guidance on the best local restaurants and bars where we could also get discounts as a result of staying at the resident. The little kitchen in the hotel room was very, very helpful for coffee drinkers. Unbelievably, I'm not one. There's a little coffee machine right there as well. Do you know what was lovely as well? City centre location... Double-double glazing. There was the outdoor window, then an indoor window. No noise. I slept like an actual log. Beautiful room, very spacious, well-equipped, lovely hotel, lovely staff, lovely location. Take this as a personal endorsement. I've been there, done that, and you should do the same. Stay at the resident. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks for being with us. Uh, right, let's welcome to the podcast Scarlett McGuire, a director at JL Partners, uh, a polling company. Um, some might say, well, I mean, Kirsty, you've worked with JL Partners quite closely, haven't you, in the past? Yes, they're, uh, I would like to say they're a leading polling <laughs> company uh, <laughs> with its exceptional insight and its finger right on the pulse of the British public. So, uh, uh, and American public, obviously, increasingly. Yeah. So. so, with that, welcome, Scarlett. Hello. Hello. Uh, from a leading polling company, or indeed the leading polling company. Great to have you. Um, and the sort of idea then, what we want to do is we're going to discuss a year of Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister, and indeed sort of look ahead to, I suppose, the next few months, potentially just over a year. Who knows when the election will actually turn out to be. Um, but I think, Scarlett, what would be interesting just to start out with is, is an overview of how the year has been for Prime Minister Sunak and where the sort of peaks and troughs have been very apparent in terms of support for him, and therefore, I suppose, um, a, a, is it kind of a helpful report card in some ways? Yeah, I mean, so I think it's, it's worth bearing in mind that um, I think I'll just say one thing to start with, actually, which is that in some ways we start and finish this uh, sort of marking his year in number 10 in this similar-ish place, even though it feels quite different polling-wise, which is that he came in as basically the Conservatives' last hope and their only hope of making things better before the next general election. And actually, even though he's had a very rough year in the polls, which we'll get onto in a second, I think that's basically where we still leave it 12 months later. So, you know, there's no challenger the wings. I don't think anyone is suggesting a leadership or seriously suggesting a leadership contest would do them any favours in the polls. So sort of um, whatever MPs might be feeling at the moment, as far as the polls are concerned still and public sentiment, he is still their best hope. So I think that is something that's sort of worth bearing in mind. And I think that actually points to the second problem, which is actually I think there, there potentially was a little too much hope or optimism around him when he came in about what it is that he would be able to fix. So he came into a Conservative Party that was sort of 30 points plus behind in the polls after Liz Truss that had its damage, uh, reputation seriously damaged by Partygate, by the chaos at the end of Boris Johnson administration and had been damaged, you know, of years of psychodrama and infighting after Brexit. And I think this idea and this sort of maybe even slightly artificial hope that the country and the party had for him to start with was potentially always going to come crashing down when it was met with the reality of the sorts of problems that he would have to fix. So... If we look at his polling, when he came in, he straight away started off as much higher than um, Liz Truss. I'm not going to think so much about, uh, we can talk about personal quality polling, which we'll maybe get onto in more detail in a bit. But if we just look at that question of who would make the best prime minister, which is often the best shorthand for this between Sunak and Starmer, he came in very close. He came in pretty much neck and neck. Uh, things deteriorated uh, reasonably rapidly over that couple of months. I mean, there were some bruising things like uh, illegal immigration crossings were in the headlines a lot, and he got a lot of flack for that. 
things started turning around a bit in the new year. So um, not so much the pledges. I actually don't think there was that much cut through. I think he did manage to correctly identify what the public uh, concerned about and what they'd like to see fixed. Uh, but they didn't necessarily pick up on uh, what he was going to do about it or that he'd even said those things. I think the real breakthrough was some of that positive press he got after the Windsor framework. Mm. Uh, we saw things start to improve quite dramatically again. So again, he was neck and neck with Starmer. And the conservative brand, it looked like for a second he might be able to pull the conservative brand up with him. I think there were quite a lot of excited column inches uh, written at the time. I remember giving some interviews at the time about what this polling uh, increase could mean and whether the polls would narrow um, increasingly after that. Sadly for him, things came crashing back to earth. I think the first thing was the local elections. I think that was the first sort of um, collision with reality uh, with a really bruising set of local election results for him. Uh, and we saw, I think, his personal reputation, both inside and outside the party, take a hit. I also think we then see things got quite a lot worse when Boris Johnson came back in the headlines. And I think this is something that you can see repeatedly, is that when he can put some cold water, if he is ever able to put cold water between him and uh, the legacy of the Conservative administration in which he is the fifth, you know, prime minister presiding over, he's all right. But as soon as it comes back, so we've seen that recently, I think, with Nadine Dorries and Chris Pincher as well, as soon as it comes back, it really bites him. So we saw that with Boris Johnson uh, when that vote was in the Commons. I think uh, he was not very decisive about that. I think that damaged him. And actually, very few things get cut through with the public. But I remember doing focus groups at the time and people were talking about that. Uh, and so that unfortunately for him, that was one thing that I think actually really did damage his mm. personal reputation. Um, and we can talk a bit about why that was quite damaging potentially later. And then actually, unfortunately, things have only really got worse since there. So then we had uh, the by-elections in July. And even though they were holding on to this hope of Uxbridge, actually, in terms of his um, you know, approval ratings, it, it's not really made much of a difference. And then we're looking again, their big hope was conference season. Again, things seem to have got worse after that. So we're now looking a year on where things can change and things can change quite quickly, but it's probably going to be harder for himself to, to pull himself back up from where he is here. Wow, that is brilliant. What a really helpful uh, snapshot of the year. Um, I've, I'm quite struck by quite a few things in there. First of all, the too much hope, the too much optimism. I think that's really interesting that people's expectations were almost sort of too high, Kirsty, of what, what Rishi Sunak was actually really going to do. But I suppose, what does that speak to? Is First of all, I think there's a real desire that people wanted something to change and something to get better. But then second of all, it was actually unrealistic. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've said it before, I'll probably bore everyone and say it again. You know, he had a legacy that was about as toxic uh, as any prime minister has inherited since Margaret Thatcher in 1979. And, you know, it's hard uh, against the backdrop of uh, the, you know, extreme damage caused by Partygate and Owen Patterson and Pincher, the, the three Ps, um, and then the you know the incredible damage caused in such a spectacularly short time by Liz Truss and uh, and the budget and what have you and what that's done for you know what it did to the markets and what it did for you know mortgages for millions of people in this country um, you know so that that only made the situation worse uh, I think because there was an expectation you know Scarlett's one hundred percent right because of an expectation the grown ups are back in charge and the grown ups are back in charge and we should give credit for, you know, stabilising the economy. But, but you know, the weight of expectation was huge. The challenges is, you know, uh, of the intray was, was almost insurmountable and nothing uh, faced in the economy is going to be turned around quickly. It certainly wasn't going to be turned around in a year. They'll be extremely lucky if... And, you know, and again, we come up against this reality of, you know, when you have your five pledges, what you can tick off a bit in some of those, like you can say, oh, you know, a growing economy. Well, it's grown 0.5%. So on paper, he's right. You know, halving inflation, we're, you know, it's 6.7%. It started in January at 10%. So again, mm. on paper, it's going in the right direction. But it doesn't feel like that to anybody. You know, the cost of living crisis is still all-consuming in the public's mind. And so what you can achieve on paper and how it, you know, and the lag between that and how it feels when, you know, personal taxation, the taxation is so high anyway and interest rates remain, you know, 6.7 is, is not fun if you're about to fall off your fixed-term 
you know, yeah. uh, fixed term rate on your mortgage. Um, you know, it doesn't. None of this has any kind of read through to the public and how they feel. And I don't see that hugely changing in twenty four either. Even if you push the election right back into autumn or January twenty five, it's just not going to turn around that quickly. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's actually. I think that that sort of really puts the finger on it because I think the the problem is, and I think what's actually potentially inflamed the situation or made things worse with his standing with the public recently. And I can, can I can understand why they're doing it because they've not got many other things they can really do. Is that I think because they are so aware that people are very unhappy with the state of the country, and I'm talking particularly I think economy above and beyond everything else, but also things like um the immigration system. There's a lot of unhappiness about how that is handled, and then the NHS, and I think the problem is, is they've been dialing up the rhetoric, sort of saying, you know, it is going to be fixed. We're doing this. We're doing that. We're doing that. And that is just um, not tallying with what people are seeing on the ground. And I think people are already quite wary of promises that politicians made that aren't kept. And they're very suspicious of politicians, very apathetic towards politics in general. And so I think um, they they pick up on, even if it's not sort of... they. They feel that they're being lied to, even if they're not, if the rhetoric's being dialed up and it's not being met with action. Um, and I think that's part of the problem at the moment is that there's a lot of noise about uh, the economy and immigration and what they're going to do and uh, perceptively little action, even if you know if you can quibble about the details on that. And I suppose from what you said before, Scarlett, to put that alongside the bump that he got after delivering the Windsor framework... I think is is potentially a good example of this, where actually where there's a tangible outcome. Look, we have done something. Here is the result of the work that we have done. We have delivered this. And I think you said that he was neck and neck with Starmer, basically, when the Ooh. Windsor framework was kind of kicking in. So that probably speaks to that delivery point, that as soon as you can say, here is the result of our work, people appreciate that. Well, and exactly, and especially for a politician like him. So, you know, I think he came in in stark contrast to uh, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson. So his most sort of positive attributes when he came in was that people thought he was strong, people thought he was very competent, and people thought he was able to make decisions well. And I think it's no coincidence that people thought that of him, given how Liz Truss and Boris Johnson uh, were as character, you know, as characters and how they also then handled their times, uh, you know, for very brief and um, slightly less brief times in office. And I, but I think that's the real problem then, is that if he doesn't have competent and able to make decisions and carry things through, he's not left with that much else because he was never that charismatic. We never really won people over on other things. And actually, even though, yes, the public do think he is incredibly out of touch and that is damaging, it's, I think, what's done the most damage for him in the last year is I think he could still survive that if people thought he was um, very able to get things done. And that's what's been slightly shot to pieces recently. And I think that's what's going that, to, that's going to be the worst thing for him, basically. Mm. Kind of, so we're kind of into the sort of personal attributes. When you say incredibly out of touch, what's that about? What does that come down to when you're doing focus groups and things? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think people always had this idea that he was wealthy. I think it is true. I mean, it's easy to forget now that he was one of the most popular. I mean, he was the most popular politician actually for a lot of the early part of the pandemic, um, and he was unusually popular. And you might be, able, you know, you might say that's because he was handing out money to everyone. I think that does help. But there was also the sense that he was this sort of um, safe pair of hands. I think people knew he was wealthy, but I do actually think it's where things like the Labour attack lines and actually attacks from people within his own party as well have really, really stuck so we see things like his wife being a billionaire the non-dom status again has huge cut through in a way that's quite unusual and i think especially when people are feeling very worried about their own bills they then see him through that lens they see everything he's doing through a lens of someone who uh, doesn't understand their problems and at worst is not even trying to understand their problems and i think that's why it can be so damaging yeah, and this is the trouble for him because there is, you know, nothing you can do about, you know, personal wealth is personal wealth, right? But it has hit up against, you know, an unprecedented cost of living crisis. And if you remember the word cloud that they did at the start of um, uh, the um, conference, conference yeah. you know, the, the, the big word rich, out of touch was the thing that, you know, screamed out from that word cloud. I'm not a big fan of word clouds, but they are a shorthand version of what you'll get in focus groups, right? Mm. Uh, and so, you know, so you've got this idea already that this guy is rich and simply cannot understand the struggles of, all, you know, of ordinary people. But also you've got this perception within number 10 of the team around him that there is still time 
because he is the guy of economic competence. If you can take that and say, you know, if you give yourself another year, look, we've halved inflation, you know, our economy is growing. I mean, reducing debt is not going in the right direction right now, I might add. But because, you know, his personal brand is, you know, a bit kind of accountant vibes, you know, and he scores best on economic competence, you have no choice, if you like, but to, to pin your your promotion and your branding of him on that, particularly when you've had this backdrop of, um, you know, him being the guy that, you know, the road to the rescue, if you like, during the pandemic from an economic point of view. But we come back to the same point. You know, if what you're, you know, what, what you've hung your pledges on and your delivery on, you know, A, has a kind of mixed kind of scorecard at the end of it, and B, isn't filtering down to how people feel, people's natural instinct will be, well, you know, A, you're not the guy we thought, you're not the guy of economic competence, uh, because look at the kind of macroeconomic picture, and B, you know, so, uh, you know, the economy has grown 0.5%. What does that do for me? I still... You know, I'm struggling with my supermarket shop and to meet my bills and to, you know, to, to buy clothes from my kids, you know. And so until that filters down, and that will be, you know, not next year, uh, I think they're really going to struggle with that. And then, you know, his personal wealth really works against him. Scarlett, is there anything in here and in the in the previous year and sort of looking forward that suggests that Labour are responsible for chipping away at Rishi Sunak's lead? Or is it more about Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives not delivering and, and those sorts of things that we've talked about? Is there any evidence to suggest that Labour have somewhat capitalised? Yeah, I mean, I actually think they're, they're both true. I think it is it is primarily uh, the Conservatives that have gifted them this lead. And mm. again, I think you just have to look what happened even in you know the peak of Boris Johnson's Partygate scandals Labour never really managed to pull that far ahead when he stepped down as Prime Minister they were 10 points ahead I mean that's you know that's much closer than anything we've seen since and uh and it was Liz Truss really it was that th- I think at one point it got to 35 points or something it was like that gap was just it was massive mm. and so I think it was mostly being gifted that lead it, there is something that is suggesting that Labour has managed there again there's some attack lines are saying that they have managed to land I think very successfully and again actually what I think is quite interesting about this competition or this race between uh, Sunak and Starmer is that in some ways they're quite similar I think they're instinct you know and I think people would see them in a slightly similar way in that they're managerial they're technocratic they're technocratic sorry they're they're not very charismatic actually uh, and they're, they're sort of bigger claims are to, to competence and for being a safe pair of hands and for delivering uh, and I think in some ways what they've quite rightly banked on is that they kind of just need to stand still and let the Conservatives um, sort of destroy themselves and they'll be able to capitalise on that quite naturally. Obviously, that comes with sorting your own party out and making sure there's no psychodrama that's spilling out from your own party, or at least if there is, that you take a clear line on it and you you know, you know make the best out of that fight, which I think he's undeniably been doing. Mm. So they've put themselves in the position to capitalise. I do, however, think that they've started... I think part of the reason we've seen Keir Starr I think we have seen a bit of a shift in him the last few weeks. You know, I think from conference speech onwards, actually, really, or maybe starting with that Rutherford and Hamilton win, he seems to be more confident uh, both in, uh, you know, in his manner of communication, but also in saying what he's going to do. And I think that will be because they started picking up on the same sort of pressure that I've been picking up in focus groups that I think everyone has been doing them for a while, which is uh, that people might hate the Conservatives, but they're not won over by Keir. And actually, you know, potentially more dangerously for him, not only are they not won over by him because they think he's a bit boring, they, they distrust him slightly. And it was because he wasn't saying what he was going to do. And because he just seemed like, you know, just another politician that might be saying one thing while, you know, crossing their fingers behind their back to get elected. All that. They're very, very deeply suspicious of him. And I think they're understanding now that to mitigate that uh, and to make sure that these people actually do come out and vote for them on election day, they're going to have to make it a bit clearer what he's standing for. But I think we, we, we are starting to see signs of that. We'll see how mm-hmm. it goes. Obviously, that means that you can make errors as well uh, and you can, you know, you can uh, upset people or you can touch on areas that people have hesitations uh, about labour over. But I think the thing is, they can, I think they should be more confident to do that given, you know, just how damaged the Conservative brand is. It gives them more wiggle room, I think, to be a bit braver. Kirsty, you've been saying that for a little while, haven't you, about Keir Starmer, that people just aren't entirely sold on him as an election prospect. How, how long does it take to carve out that, that narrative, though, where he can convince people? 
Well, I think Scarlett's right. I think, you know, I think both leaders went into the party conference season needing to, to, to tell more of a story, create more of a vision about the sort of Britain that they wanted to build. Uh, I think, uh, in fairness, Rishi Sunak's attempt to do that was a bit of a miss, fire. Um, I mean, you know, three disparate policies uh, of varying degrees of... of uh, uh, success, if you like, in terms of how they were perceived, doth not a, a narrative or a compelling story make. And I think Keir Starmer made a much, much better fist uh, out of, of beginning to sort of say, this is who I am, this is why I'm in politics, this is what motivates me, and therefore this is the sort of Britain I want to build. Um, Obviously, again, Scarlett's right. He has done, you know, he's expended a lot, quite rightly, a lot of political capital on purging the party of some really toxic extremist elements that were allowed to flourish under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. And huge, huge credit should go for that. And obviously, we'll talk again about, you know, in a bit about how that is, you know, potentially becoming a resurgent problem for him. But, you know, it's the same, you know, it's the I feel, and Scarlett, correct me if I'm wrong on this, it's the same sort of issue uh, for those of us that, that did the 2017 election under Theresa May. You know, we're always mindful of a 20-point of a lead, right? Because, you know, Theresa May's lead went in at 20 points and it was, as, they, as the pollsters say, it was broad, but it was shallow. And therefore... One error, one error about social care policy you saw that drain away, you know, faster than water down a, you know, down a sink plug hole. Um, <laughs> and you feel, you know, a year is a very long time. You know, the, you know, it's it's very, you know, politics remains very volatile. Um, so I think it would be, you know, foolish of anyone to say right now it's definitely in the bag because they've got a twenty-two point lead in it and it's not shifted in in a year. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm actually, yeah, I'm really glad you brought up 2017 because that's what I always think about. If you think about that six-week campaign, so much changed. And I think it's easy to forget now that actually, you know, Corbyn, 2017 Corbyn was very different from how the public, you know, responded to him than 2019 Corbyn. And actually a lot of the more negative uh, things hadn't solidified about him yet. And he went hugely up in, you know, part of the electorate's, uh, you know, uh, imaginations. And um, Theresa May went hugely down and in a really, really short period of time. I do, however, think that um, I think it is easier for Keir Starmer to go up because he doesn't have to be held accountable uh, for some of the things that are going wrong. And I do think it will be even it will be harder for Rishi Sunak. I think, you know, as is more increasingly as times goes by, it will uh, in some ways become harder and harder because people can just point to, I think, you know, longer and longer of conservative rule after which at the moment, at any rate, they feel worse off. And that's what people say. And I actually kind of think I know that um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, President Rishi or trying to make it about their personalities, which obviously they have been trying to do. But I think they're not really going to be able to escape the fact that I'm, uh, you know, from what we're seeing anyway, especially from focus groups, I really do feel like the next election will be a referendum on the state of the country more than a sort of vote uh, for, for either party. And Scarlett, how much of this has shifted in the last year from it being about party gate? Uh, which I think was a kind of seismic turning point yeah. in, the, in, the, in the public's relationship with the Conservative Party as a whole. How much of that, in terms of focus groups, has shifted away from that and you know the, the mortgage uh, time bomb that Liz Truss has left everybody um, yeah. to actually just the state of the economy and why isn't Rishi turning it around? Well, exactly. I think the reason why the Partygate scandal was so pernicious and so bad for their brand was that it actually colours and informs their view of everything else. So actually, like, um, people still bring it up. People still bring up. And even if they don't mention Boris by name, they often do. But they mention, you know, some a party that was lying to them or that wasn't aware of their concerns whilst, you know, they were having a hard time. And the problem is that's then the lens through which they see everything else. So, um, I Yes, I think a lot of it has been that people are just feeling really hard up and are feeling like they're much more hard up than a few years ago. A lot of it actually, you know, did a focus group of Surrey Conservatives recently, most of whom I think had always voted Conservative, none of whom were saying they were going to vote Conservative in the next election wow. as things stand. And these were actually, I think, a lot of their concerns was not so much, yes, they are feeling hard up, but they were people in their sort of 
50s actually who had children in their 20s who were unable to get a start the start in life they thought they were going to so i think actually it's sort of like it affects people even indirectly they can feel that quite acutely but um I, as i said party gate actually colors everything it was so especially if you have you know remember if we remember the you know, talks about the conservative party being like the nasty party and trying to get away from that the party gate just went straight to the heart of it and, and um, it's colored how they see everything else um, I think, and that was why I think actually I, I mentioned it at the beginning about uh, Rishi Sunak not taking a decisive uh, stand against Boris Johnson when he was given the opportunity to earlier in the summer. And I think that was actually incredibly damaging. I think that could have been a bit of a turning point in his brand to put some distance between them and to differentiate himself. And he he missed it, actually. He missed it quite spectacularly. And I think the damage from that, or at least the missed potential, uh, I think has been ignored a bit. And it's uh, it's fascinating to hear that because I hadn't realised quite how, um, you know, kind of profound a moment that was for the public and how much cut through that got. Um, And I just, from a kind of Kirsty's rules of comms uh, uh, viewpoint, if I may, I am forever frustrated by uh, Labour's shifting kind of core messaging around the Conservatives. It's like they can't, they've got so much choice, if you like, <laughs> they can't quite decide where to settle. And for me, like, listening to you talk now, it strikes me that, you know, whether you're talking about Partygate, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, Liz Truss and the kind of mortgage uh, bombshell, or you're talking about the perception of Rishi's uh, wealth, or you're talking about, and again, I'm sure people still bring this up, you know, uh, preferred contracts in COVID and yeah. all that, you know, all that sort of stuff. There is one kind of unifying element here from a comms point of view for Labour, which is, you know, the Conservatives, one rule for them yeah. and another rule for the rest of us. Yeah. You know, and so if I was, <laughs> if I was the director of comms at Labour, you know, I would stop trying to move around and shift onto this or shift onto that or sh- you know everyone can feel the economy you don't need to make that argument it's kind of a given what you need is a whole brand messaging about the conservative party because i think most people look at rishi and think he's a decent guy trying to do a good job yep. but the chips are stacked against him i think most people see that so stop leveling it at him and bring people back to the much more kind of fertile ground of the conservatives as a whole yeah and i think that actually that goes back to the sort of the very first thing i said which is that he is still their best hope and actually people are even if you know i think some of the data can be a bit misleading i mean i don't think it, it doesn't do him any favors now and the by-elections were you know very firm proof of that at the moment people are not going to vote for him in the numbers anything like the numbers that he needs and that is obviously um as deficit on his part but like uh, they are not anywhere near as vitriolic about him as they are about the conservative party or the government and they don't talk about him in the same tone there's not there's not a hatred um or anything close to it actually it's just this sense that he's not up to it now and you could you know maybe that's easier to turn around but it's not quite the same whereas some people still especially when they talk about things like partygate it is it's like um it's much more visceral than that mm-hmm. and much more extreme and rightly so well, yeah. yeah indeed yeah. um it's so fascinating scarlet i just want one final question because we spoke on times radio breakfast last weekend you and i after um the by-election double by-election results and i remember you saying at that point that you know to extrapolate the swing and to extrapolate those results into an election would leave the conservatives with about 30 seats at westminster now mm. i remember you said that is clearly silly but it's just to kind of prove yeah. you know what what stage we're at here a week on from those by-elections and to sort of take away the silliness what is the kind of forecast what's the expectation you know, with the disclaimers in place that things can change very quickly, is the consensus here that the Conservatives are, are, are heading for a thumping? Well, I think, you know, the, the problem is that those sets of by-elections were, I mean, they were spectacularly grim, actually, I think, especially taken in context with Selby and then actually Rutland and Hamilton in terms of what that means for Labour as well and what it means for the SNP in Scotland is, I mean, is remarkably grim backdrop and in some ways a grimmer one than I think John Major had going into 97. However, I think this is the thing that... Um, because, as I was saying, the the thing that I think the public are actually most upset about is the state of the economy, public services, immigration, stuff like that. I mean, I guess there is a world in which uh, those get turned around very fast in a way that people can see and feel them. And then I think maybe things could change quite a lot. But that seems quite far-fetched at the moment, which is, you know, why I'm hesitant to say things will get dramatically better. I guess the other big unknown is that, um, you know, we talked about low turnout, I think, as well, at those 
by-elections. And there is huge amounts of voter apathy out there at the moment. That's partly plays into sort of Keir Starmer stuff as well. And actually, I think there is something uh, damaging long-term about politicians not really winning people over or people, you know, perceiving them to not have their best interests at heart. Uh, across the board, because I think that makes people turn off. And we, we've seen people turned off. I guess the question is, will they come back? Will they go to places like Reform? Will they go to independent candidates? Will they just not bother? Will they go to Labour on us? We just don't know. But I think at the moment, though, the Conservatives would be wrong to bank on all of those con- people who voted Conservative in 2019, who currently don't know coming back, which is an awful lot of people, mm. could tighten the polls hugely. Uh, they're not looking like they're coming back at the moment. That might change. Uh, but, you know, I guess that's that, that combined with um, a sort of miracle, like a miraculous uh, recovery in terms of how the country is working uh, could change things. But at the moment, that, that's not quite looking like how it will go. Really yeah, and if I can um, if I can fly a small flag for my own company, Stonehaven's rather brilliant polling too. The last MRP polling we did in September, uh, which, you know, gives people, you know, a, 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 a sort of predictive poll, uh, a polling method which gives a, a lot of accuracy about where people feel because it's about voting on values rather than just about the kind of swings and turns of, of daily headlines, if you like. That gave Labour a majority of 90. Yeah. Um, you know, which would be, you know, uh, which would better 97. Mm. Although having said that, you know, to, to come back to Scarlett's point about the leaders... Uh, you know, there was high levels of dissatisfaction in that same poll about both Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer as preferred MP. And it comes back to the point, you know, the Conservatives, the reason the Conservatives put Rishi Sunak front and centre in their campaigning is because he is still the best hope that they have got. He is still seen as competent, trying to do the right thing, working really hard. You know, the team around him are seen as grown-ups after some really, really, really damaging years. So if Labour, you know, Labour should concentrate on the Conservative Party going into the election and uh, the Conservatives should concentrate on Rishi Sunak and Number 10 because it is still, you know, the, you know he is... He is widely regarded as trying to do the right thing. I mean, you can push the kind of unlucky general thing if you're Labour or weak, but I just don't think it has the same cut through as going, look at the Conservative Party, look at 13 years, look at the state of our schools, our hospitals, you know, look at how they parted while all of us obeyed the rules, look at what they've done to your mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think you're. I think that's absolutely right. I think. I think what what has gone slightly wrong for them the last month or so is that they put all the attention on Rishi, but it's looked like he's pulling some slightly desperate political levers. And I think that was the thing what you said about the three disparate policies. It kind of looks like he's reaching randomly um, for political fixes whilst not addressing or not getting on with uh, the task of turning the country around. Now, obviously, he can't really shout about doing that, but I think that is difficult because I think the more the public see him do those things that look a bit um, desperate or hard to understand, the worse his reputation will get. So I think it, it's, a, you know, it's it, that, that I think will be tricky for them. Yeah, which, which comes back to my slightly bemused kind of uh, the tactic that they picked um, uh, for his conference speech and Danny Finkelstein did a great piece about there are only really three tunes you can play particularly if you've been in government for as long as the Conservatives have and I think they picked the wrong one I don't think there's any authenticity in saying I'm the change candidate no I don't Uh, I think there's much more authenticity I mean it's not fun uh, but it is at least honest and you know and and speaks to integrity that i think that you know that rishi has a you know a legitimate authentic brand for which is slightly a version of uh, and i don't want to use the a word the austerity word but a version of that which is look mm. there's a lot of tough times ahead we need to take a lot of decisions we need to steady our nerves but when we bring down inflation etc cetera, etc cetera, interest rates will eventually fall none of this is a quick fix None of this is easy, but then you throw a bit of sunny uplands at the end of this and a bit of hope. But he needs a narrative that is, you know, more convincing than I am the change candidate. And it needs to be around a version of, look, you know, we need to stick with this. They need to promote the idea about, you know, also debt as a proportion of GDP. Why that matters hugely to bring that down, which, again, is part of old Osborne's 
austerity messaging. You know, when you're spending, you know, billions of pounds on servicing debt, you're not spending it on frontline public services. So where are the kind of commentary outriders pitch rolling these kind of messages for the Conservative Party that these are some hard yards for the country, but on the back of COVID, on the back of borrowing, on the back of, you know, need to bring down debt, squeeze out inflation, eventually we will get there and people will feel it, but you need to stick with it because it's the right way forward for the country and ultimately everybody within it. But I just, I don't see that messaging. I don't see that narrative. Really, really fascinating. Um, Scarlett, thank you very much. Thanks for joining the podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. Not at all. That is the brilliant Scarlett Maguire, a director at JL Partners Polling Company, with absolute second to none rundown on a year of Prime Minister Sunak. And that is it from Whitehall Sources for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for finding us as we mark one year of us (laughs) existing and one year of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Lots still to come on the podcast, of course, as we rev our engines for a general election year. Thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to email anytime. The inbox is always open and the address is hello at whitehallsources.com. We will drop into your feed once again next week.